Hey, hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Web Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Michael Mandelbaum, Professor Emeritus of American Foreign Policy at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, join us to discuss how the past foreshadows future U.S. Middle East policy. Based on his latest book, The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, I will post the link in our chat, or you could search it on Amazon. And again, that's The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy. Professor Mandelbaum will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Professor Michael Mandelbaum. Uh, thank you, Stacy, and <clears throat> thanks to all of you who have joined. Uh, my projections about American policy in the Middle East are based on my new book, uh, The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, with the subtitle Weak Power, Great Power, Superpower, Hyperpower. So I will give a brief overview of that book as background and context for what I have to say about the present and future of American policy in the Middle East. The book covers 250 years of American foreign policy from 1765 to 2015, from the Stamp Act to the Iran deal. And it has three purposes. The first is simply to tell the story, to recount the major events and discuss the most important personalities over these 25 decades. The second is to address the major controversies in the history of American foreign policy. And so I deal with such questions as, why did the 13 colonies rebel against the British Empire at the end of the 18th century? Why did the Cold War begin and why did it end as it did? And which presidents were the most successful and which the least successful in conducting American foreign policy? The third purpose of the book is to draw out the themes that run through all 250 years of American foreign policy. What are these themes? Well, uh, the history of American foreign policy, like the history of everything, has both continuities and changes, and it is on the major continuities and the most important changes that this book is based. Let me say a brief word about each. There are, in my judgment, three major continuities over the 250 years of American foreign policy that I cover. In that period, America has conducted an unusually ideological foreign policy, which is to say it has devoted unusual attention to trying to promote American values, above all democracy within countries and peace among them, beyond its borders. Second, the United States has conducted an unusually economic foreign policy. More than other countries, it has sought to use economic instruments until the 20th century trade, but from the 20th century to the present, the export of capital as well to achieve political goals in the world. Third, um, the, the United States has conducted an unusually democratic foreign policy in that compared with other countries, 
especially the great powers of Europe, the public and public opinion have had an unusually large influence on the formation and implementation of American foreign policy. As for change, over this period, the United States has steadily become more powerful in relation to other countries. And remember, power in the world is relative. And this has led to four distinct roles in the world by the United States, which are reflected in the book's subtitle. From 1765 to 1865, the United States was a weak power concerned with defending its independence so that it could expand across North America. From 1865 to 1945, it was a great power and engaged in the two activities that are characteristic of great powers. The first being to cooperate, but also to compete with other great powers. The second being to carve out a sphere of influence in the American case encompassing Central Europe and the Eastern Pacific. From 1945 to 1990, the United States was one of the world's two superpowers competing with the other superpower, the Soviet Union in political, economic, and military terms around the world. And from 1990 to 2015, America was the world's only hyperpower. The term comes from the French foreign minister, Hubert Védrine, who called the United States an hyperpuissance. During this period, the United States faced no serious rivals and really no threats to its security. This was the period of maximal freedom of action for the United States in the world. Well, what does all this imply for American policy in the Middle East going forward. There are, I think, three major implications. First, note that America has been more deeply engaged in the Middle East, the more powerful it has become. In its eras as a weak power and even as a great power, it had relatively little to do with the region. As a superpower, the United States did become engaged in the Middle East, but only in connection with its global rivalry with the Soviet Union and international communism. It was really only in the age of the American hyperpower, the age of maximal power, when the Middle East became important, indeed in some ways central to American foreign policy with the two Persian Gulf Wars, the democracy uh, initiative and the preoccupation, some might say obsession, with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What does this mean for the present? Well, the United States is now relatively less powerful than it was between 1990 and 2015 because it faces serious challenges in uh, Europe and in East Asia. And now uh, a basic pattern of American foreign policy comes into play. In that foreign policy, the Middle East has always been only third in importance to the United States among the world's regions. Europe and East Asia have always been and are in the present more important. They are the locations of greatest wealth and the source of greatest threats to and for the United States. That means that the United States will have less attention and fewer resources to devote to the Middle East. And indeed, 
we can see that the three presidents who have served after the end of the era of American hyperpower, that is Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden, despite all their differences and despite their significant differences in policy toward the Middle East, have all tried to lower America's profile in the region. And they have all shied away from confronting, indeed from threatening to use force against Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, which pre presents serious problems for the region and for the United States. One might say that the greatest beneficiaries of the aggressive foreign policies of Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have been the Iranian mullahs. And that suggests that the United States may not do all that is necessary to cope with the Iranian threat. There's a second pattern in the history of American foreign policy that points tentatively in the opposite direction. Repeatedly over 250 years, uh, a dramatic event has occurred, usually overseas, but sometimes in the United States, that has galvanized the American public, has made the world seem suddenly more dangerous to Americans, has generated the demand for a more robust foreign policy, which has sometimes included the use of force. For example, in 1898, the destruction of the American battleship Maine in Havana Harbor created a climate of opinion that led to the Spanish-American War of 1898. Two decades later, the British submarine, uh, the German submarine sinking of the British passenger liner Lusitania in World War I transformed the public American view of Germany's role in that war and paved the way for the United States itself to enter World War I uh, only two years later. And of course, uh, we are all familiar with the attacks on Washington and New York of September 11th, 2001, which led to two American wars, one in Afghanistan, the other in Iraq. Well, there is such a galvanizing event looming over the horizon in the Middle East, namely the Iranian acquisition of nuclear weapons. That should, and probably will make the world seem suddenly more dangerous and the region seem more important to the United States. And yet it's not guaranteed to galvanize a more robust American policy in confronting Iran for two reasons. First, the Iranians may cross the nuclear threshold in stealthy, secretive fashion in a way that does not shock alarm and galvanize American public opinion. Second, even if the putative Iranian acquisition of nuclear weapons does shock the American public, it may not lead to the, imp the impetus to confront Iran more forcefully. It may have the opposite effect because nuclear weapons make a country more dangerous, more forbidding, a country that seems uh, less of a candidate against which to threaten, let alone use the use of, let alone use force. So uh, we simply don't know where 
the Iranian nuclear weapons program may take us. It may take us to a more confrontational American foreign policy in the Middle East, but it could have the opposite effect. And that brings me to the third and final projection about American foreign policy in the Middle East based on the four ages of American foreign policy. I've said that the United States has conducted an unusually ideological foreign policy, but that has not been the only approach to the world that the United States has undertaken. There is another approach, uh, sometimes called the realist approach, identified with realpolitik, which places at its center, not American values, but American power and American interests. Sometimes these two traditions conflict over a particular country or policy. And when they do, American governments have usually opted for the realist approach rather than one that gives priority to American values. When they do conflict, this creates ambivalence and two-facedness in American foreign policy. And we see that at present in the Biden administration's policy towards Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia does not embrace America's political values, but it does, uh, it, it does have to do with some American interests. It's a friend in the Middle East where America needs them, and it has been a fairly reliable supplier of oil. So when Mr. Biden came into office, he took the approach of stressing American values and said that he would make Saudi Arabia a pariah. Now, however, that the United States needs Saudi oil, he's planning a trip and apparently going to meet with the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, whom he had previously scorned, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Sultan. But this, uh, this fact of two sometimes competing traditions in American foreign policy has another implication for the Middle East. When these two traditions have been aligned, American foreign policy has enjoyed unusually broad and deep public support. This was true in World War II, and it was true as well in the Cold War. In both enterprises, the United States was both protecting its interests and advancing its values. And in the Middle East, it is true as well of the state of Israel. Israel embodies American values and helps to defend American interests. That coincidence is the reason for the longstanding, enduring, robust American support for Israel. It is support rooted in American public opinion for just that reason. And it will continue whatever the vicissitudes of American foreign policy in the Middle East turn out to be. Well, thank you for your attention and I'm ready to respond to any questions you may have. Absolutely, thank you so much. The first question is from David Levine on, on your last point with Israel. Now that Israel is poised to become a major supplier of natural gas to the Europeans and others, what changes would you anticipate in America's policies towards Israel and the Middle East? 
Well, uh, as you know, uh, the American government has expressed at certain times some reservations about uh, Israel's uh, natural gas, about their pipelines, about supplies to other countries. Uh, I would expect that to disappear. It certainly should disappear. Uh, if the United States is going to rely on Saudi Arabia for energy supplies. And when I say rely, I mean not that the United States gets energy directly from Saudi Arabia, but America's allies in Europe do. Uh, if the United States is going to rely on Saudi Arabia, it should certainly have no objections to, indeed, it should certainly enthusiastically support Israel as a supplier of energy. Thank you. So does this um, does this ideological policy of uh, foreign policy in the US keep us from understanding the motivations of Iran? Well, it might do. Uh, Americans sometimes have difficulty in understanding the motivations and the political culture of other countries. I'm not sure that that is unique to the United States. I think every country projects its own values onto the world. But the United States is involved with every country in the world and is so much more important than virtually every other, every other country that such misperceptions can have an impact. But to me, the problem that successive American policies toward Iran in different administrations have had is not that the government has not understood Iran, but that if it hasn't understood Iran, it has not wished to understand Iran. It has not wished to understand the intense drive on the part of the Islamic Republic to dominate the Middle East. It has not wished to understand that the Islamic Republic declared war on the United States from the moment it came to power and has waged that war with all the means at its disposal since then. And American governments have not wished to recognize that because to recognize it is to undertake a strong policy of opposing Iran and for various reasons, but in the last few years, especially because American foreign policy has had so many other things to worry about things that to which it is given higher priority than Iran. For that reason, the American government under three presidents has not wished fully to recognize, to take on board and to act on the basis of real Iranian motivations in the Middle East. Thank you so much for that. Daniel Pipes asks, are you suggesting that a Bernie Sanders type president would change his policy about Israel? Well, Bernie Sanders would come into office asserting that he would change his policy toward Israel. But one of the things that I say in the book is that the great breaks in American foreign policy do not come when one party succeeds another of the opposite uh, political party in the White House. The great changes in American foreign policy come about in response to events in the middle of administrations. So uh, every new administration comes into office declaring that it will be completely different from its predecessor, if its predecessor was of the opposite party, in every way possible. And it never turns out that way. I would add, however, 
that it seems to me that the fact that the world has become more dangerous since 2015 is another reason, if one were needed, to be skeptical that Bernie Sanders or a Bernie Sanders-like candidate will ever become president of the United States. It could, of course, happen. Anything is possible. But it seems to me that with the end of the era of the American hyperpower, this becomes rather less likely. Thank you. Robert Larrick asks, isn't America's alliance structure and attitudes also critical to America's power? Yes, it is. Uh, America has always done best in alliance with other countries. This goes back to the American Revolution. The United States could not have become independent from Great Britain without the active military assistance of France, a country, incidentally, whose domestic political values were completely opposed to those that the American colonials were uh, professing and on the basis of which they made the revolution. Uh, the French helped the American colonials for purely realist reasons to weaken their great adversary, Great Britain. And it's true in the present era, which is the one yet to be named after the era of the American hyperpower. The United States does have alliances, actual and potential, that uh, are all interested in opposing the aggressive designs of Russia in Europe, China in East Asia, and uh, Iran in the Middle East. Unfortunately, in the Middle East, it has become a kind of conceit of uh, at this administration and particularly the Obama administration to pick fights with its real allies and to try to conciliate its actual adversary, Iran. This is the sort of thing that was possible with which the United States could get away during its era of unchallenged power. But that era is now over. The United States does face real challenges and real threats. And the fact that President Biden is going to Saudi Arabia to meet with Mohammed bin Sultan is a sign that if only belatedly and not publicly, this administration recognizes what has happened. Thank you. Lev Citrin asks, you discussed adversarial Iran, and one would agree that the simplest way to confront the regime of the Ayatollahs is to debunk the Islamist idea ideology that underpins the regime. We never fear to confront Marxism ideology ideologically. I have such trouble with that word. But don't do it to Islamism. Islamism. Uh, do you know why? Well, uh, I think uh, part of the reason surely is that uh, Marxism-Leninism claimed to be a universal ideology, one that was appropriate for everything, every situation, and everyone, including the United States and its allies. So it was natural for the United States to push back. Uh, Islamism is an ideology for the Muslim world, and the United States is not a sectarian country and is certainly not a Muslim country, and that means that it makes it rather awkward uh, to push back on Islamism. It's also not clear that the United States, speaking as a government, would have much credibility with the people who are susceptible to, uh, to the Islamic creed. But I should say that this is the kind of issue that the Middle East Forum in general, and Daniel Pipes in particular, 
have worked on uh, to great effect, at least in educating me. So uh, that is the source to go to for this kind of issue. Well, thank you for that. Uh, MJ Webster asks, do you think that Israel will attack Iran as Iran apparently progresses, progresses towards getting nuclear weapons? And what do you think will be the US reaction? Well, in the past, in the Obama administration, uh, the, Obama, uh, the Obama people actively tried to discourage Israel from using force against the Iranian nuclear weapons program, which was a terrible mistake because the Israeli threat was a great source of leverage. What the Obama administration should have been doing was to go to countries and governments that have some credibility with Iran and say, you know, uh, I'm afraid that the Israelis are going to attack and do terrible damage unless Iran does something, is more forthcoming about giving up its nuclear weapons program. Instead, the Obama administration did the opposite with the predictable results that uh, Iran went from strength to strength. I don't know whether Israel will launch an attack on uh, the Iranian nuclear facilities, although I'm sure that it thinks hard about this and is practicing for it. If it does so, I certainly hope that the United States will back it up, if only rhetorically, and I hope that the United States is perhaps clandestinely providing Israel with the kind of weaponry it needs to be effective in taking out the Iranian nuclear weapons program if it chooses to do so. And Stephen Orlo follows up, do you foresee the possibility of an Israeli attack on Iran without prior U.S. approval? And what would the U.S. reaction, what would the U.S. reaction be? Well, I think uh, if uh, Israel decides to attack, uh, it would uh, it would prefer to consult with the United States. It would prefer to notify the United States in advance, and the United States would certainly like to be notified in in advance. But if the Israeli government calculates that it is a matter of national security, even national survival, to attack the Iranian nuclear weapons facilities, and that if it notifies the United States in advance, the American government would try to impede that attack, then my guess is that Israel would not notify the United States or would not notify the United States only after the planes were in the air. Thank you. Eric asked, in your opinion, with the U.S. heading towards recession, what changes do you anticipate Biden making in regards to Russia, Iran, China, Israel, and Saudi Arabia? Well, uh, I don't think that the recession will have a particular impact on the policies toward any of those countries, but it will mean that uh, the American public will be more inwardly focused and will be more reluctant to spend money abroad. Uh, it's also the case, and this is a question that I often get asked in talks about this book, that the United States is politically divided, polarized now, and that does affect foreign policy. This is not the most polarized period in American history. That distinction belongs to the 1850s, which led, of course, to the Civil War. And in the early Republican period, the two major political parties, the Federalists and Thomas Jefferson's Republicans, which subsequently changed their name to Democrats, 
were at each other's throats. They were more polarized than Democrats and Republicans are today. Uh, now, the polarization makes American foreign policy weaker because that means that any administration can hope to command less of the public in support of any foreign policy than is the case when the United States is not, let, uh, not so polarized. The polarization didn't matter for American foreign policy in the first two periods because the United States played no real role in the world. But America plays a crucial, central role in the world now. And in order to play that role effectively, it needs maximal public support. And the sharp ideological and political polarization of the present means that maximal public support is not going to be forthcoming for any administration conducting any foreign policy. Understood. Carrie Hillebrand asks, how will the war in Ukraine impact an, on American policy regarding Israeli activity in Syria? I don't know that it will have any impact because uh, the Israelis have been active in Syria and the United States has said nothing about it. Uh, I think the United States probably places a greater value on Israeli activity in Syria because that at least indirectly weakens Russia. And weakening Russia is a goal of American policy because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I think America has been at least tacitly supportive of the Israeli campaign in Syria, and I don't see that changing. Thank you. And before we go, can you please tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Well, I do uh, publish an essay, a monthly essay uh, in the journal American Purpose. I have a website. I send it free to anybody who wishes to uh, receive it. And if you wish to be on my uh, distribution list, uh, send me an email at uh, AmericanForeignPolicy at jh.edu. That's AmericanForeignPolicy at jh.edu. And I will put you on my monthly distribution list. And of course, the best way to get my thoughts on the history of American foreign policy is to buy uh, this book, The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, Weak Power, Great Power, Superpower, Hyperpower. Not too late to make it a Father's Day gift. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I might have spelled it wrong the first time. Sorry about that. But it is in the chat for anyone that wishes to copy and paste. Uh, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Professor Mandelbaum, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to be with, uh, with you and the audience. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. For our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinars offering email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. And a happy Father's Day.